you'll be aware that five-ish months ago, uh, Sarah and I had our first child. Um, and over that period, many of you have asked how, uh, how myself and my wife are going with being parents. Generally speaking, things have been going uh, pretty well for us, if you have been asking that. But as I look to the future, there are some certain points with parenting that I'm feeling a little bit more nervous about. Uh, about a week ago, my wife Sarah and I, we began buying things like parental locks for things in our house, and we started buying uh, safety gates for our stairs, and we began getting ready for when Zach will eventually begin crawling and walking and moving through our house, which is coming up very, very quickly. Now, I'm nervous for this stage of, uh, of parenting, but there's a stage much later on that I'm feeling even more nervous about, um, and that is for when Zek becomes a teenager. Teenage years are the time that seems most scary for me to be able to raise a son because that was the time that I would have been the most difficult child for my parents. I wasn't overly rebellious or too difficult as a teenager, at least I don't think I was. Um, but I did have this independent anti-authority streak that ran through my veins. Uh, one of the things that I did, um, I'm not proud of this and I've apologised to my parents for this since then, is that at times when we would walk through the shopping centre, I would keep my distance from my parents and I would walk as far away from them as possible because I wanted to look like an independent teenager to every single person that came uh, across me. This was a very strange thing for someone to do, uh, to not be associated with their parents, considering that everyone who was walking past me in the shopping centre was someone that I would never see ever again. This and, uh, and other things like this is something that, uh, that some teenagers might do, and it's one of those things that I don't really want with, uh, with Zach in, uh, in the future. I don't want uh, my kids to ever feel embarrassed by me, because honestly, I'd find it a bit hurtful if my kids did this to me, and I'm sure that's how my parents felt uh, when, I was, when I was like this. Now today, as we continue our series in Mark, we're going to be looking at the events surrounding the death of Jesus. The Passion Narrative has begun in this moment, and the second half of the book of Mark that's been leading up to this point uh, has been leading uh, to everything that we will be reading uh, today. But in particular, what I want to focus on is the events that the Apostle Peter is involved with during this time. Now, Peter has been recognised by several events throughout the, uh, throughout the Gospel, but in particular, his denial of Jesus has become one of the things that he has become most recognised for. And sometimes when I've read the events surrounding Peter at the Passion Narrative, I've almost looked at Peter like this teenager who is embarrassed by his, his parent. He doesn't want to associate with Jesus. He doesn't want to be known as a follower of Jesus. But the events surrounding Peter at the crucifixion of Jesus, it's far more profound than just being embarrassed or not wanting association with Jesus. Peter is one of my favourites, if not my very favourite characters in all of Scripture, except for Jesus, of course. 
Peter is also one of these guys in Scripture who I've always felt a little bit sorry for. He gets a bad rap in, uh, in the Bible. He often says the wrong thing or he does the wrong thing, even though he is the closest person to Jesus. Even though he is the closest person to Jesus, there are times where he seems to really frustrate Jesus and get on Jesus' nerves. I mean, there is one point where Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Could you imagine being called Satan by Jesus, who you've devoted your life to following? And I've always read this as Jesus just building up this emotion and frustration towards Peter over a period of time and just thinking, just, just get behind me. I don't know what to call you. Can't, can't swear because I'm Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. That's one thing I've never been called in my life, and I'm sure it, uh, it affected Peter quite badly when he heard this. Peter is often remembered for moments like this, but none more so than his denial at Jesus' death. This is one of the events, and probably the event, that Peter can often be most remembered for. So let's read the events that Peter was involved in around Jesus' death, which we see in Mark 14, and we'll start from verse 27 to, uh, to 31. It says, you will fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Now, if you know much about the events surrounding the death of Jesus, you would know that it wasn't just Peter, but almost all of his disciples abandoned Jesus just before his death. Here we also see in verse 31, but Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. But all of the others, all the disciples, they all said that. So all the disciples are emphatically telling Jesus that they will never deny him. They will never abandon him. And yet most of them do. And yet Peter, he is the one who always gets singled out as the denier as the one who abandoned Jesus. Why is that? Why is it that Peter gets singled out out of everyone throughout this, uh, throughout this moment? It's believed that the Gospel of Mark was written by this person that we, that we know as Mark, but Mark was also a close follower of, uh, of Peter, and it's believed that Mark would have used Peter as his source material. Now, Peter wouldn't have been considered an academic during his lifetime or his society, and so Mark is the one who puts Peter's words and Peter's experiences and memories of Jesus down onto paper. The reason that that's important is because the, reason, uh, the, the events surrounding Peter here are Peter's own recollection of what happened at that time, and uh, Peter's portrayal of himself is not really a very positive one. Let's contrast this just for a second with the Gospel of John. 
John, if you're familiar with this gospel account, John, throughout the whole gospel, he calls himself in quite a humorous way, the disciple who Jesus loved. He has a very high and very positive opinion about himself. And on the other hand, you have Peter who is communicating his memories and his thoughts about the events surrounding the death of Jesus, and he tells Mark all of the worst things that he did. And he is getting Mark to single him out as the disciple who denied Jesus. We go on further on, Mark's, uh, sorry, Peter's next uh, interaction with Jesus in Mark 14, 32 to 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, notice that Peter is being singled out here amongst all the disciples. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. Once again, it is Peter here who is singled out as the one who is asleep. I've always found this a fairly confusing and strange part of the story. Why couldn't Peter stay awake? And why is this included as a part of the narrative? Why does it really matter if Peter was falling asleep throughout this, uh, throughout this moment as Jesus was praying? Our son, Zek, has been going through different phases of sleep throughout the past five months. When we uh, first had Zek, there were certain rhythms that we were able to get into and certain times where he was consistent throughout the night as he was waking up. Um, then we moved into this wonderful phase where our son Zek began sleeping about 10 hours a night. And this happened consistently for several nights in a row. Now, when this happened, the first thing that came into my mind was, what are parents worried about? I mean, if this is what children end up like, and it's only a few weeks of, uh, of difficult sleep, sleep, what's the big deal? Little did I know things were about to change once again. And things then began to get to this point where Zek would wake up at all different times throughout the night. We would go to bed ready for war, not knowing what to expect throughout the night. And two, about three weeks ago, sorry, just before I preached, I had a grand total of two hours of sleep being broken up. I woke up on that Sunday and I said to Sarah, my wife, that was the worst night of my entire life. 
Having experienced this, and for many of you who have also experienced this, reading the fact that Peter kept falling asleep is immensely frustrating. Why couldn't he stay awake? You can hear the frustration in Jesus' voice here. Couldn't you stay awake, Peter? For goodness sake, can't you stay awake just for one hour? That's all that Jesus is asking as he's, uh, as he's going to pray. This is a really strange detail to include. Why did Mark find it necessary to include the fact that Peter wasn't able to stay awake for Jesus? There's almost this negative brush that Peter is being painted with throughout this gospel account. It's almost like Peter, through the writings of Mark, wants the reader to know the magnitude of his denial of Jesus and his betrayal of Jesus, even in the fact that he wasn't able to remain awake for just one hour to keep watch for Jesus. Following this, we see Jesus arrested by the religious officials and he's dragged before the Sanhedrin. And while Jesus is being questioned and accused, what we see in verse 54, it says, Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and he warmed himself at the fire. Jesus here, he is questioned by the, uh, by the Sanhedrin, which is a, a Jewish judicial uh, body, which is made up of rabbis, and they find Jesus guilty in verse 64, uh, and he is worthy of death. There were two different types of Sanhedrin that we see um, that, uh, that were uh, in existence throughout Jewish um, culture. Um, there was the Great Sanhedrin, and there were also lesser Sanhedrins that existed throughout the nation. A lot of Jewish cities and towns would have had something called a lesser Sanhedrin, which was made up of 23 rabbis from these different towns, and they would come together to discuss religious matters, which automatically flowed into being legal matters within their different areas. But there was also something called the Great Sanhedrin, which was made up of 71 of the leading, most influential rabbis throughout all of Israel. So these these are the big guns of the entire country. Now, whenever you see the word Sanhedrin presented on its own, it's generally assumed that it's referring to the great Sanhedrin. Apart from anything, uh, just the fact that this is happening in Jerusalem um, suggests that this, is, uh, that this is the great Sanhedrin that, uh, that uh, Jesus is in front of. And so here you have Jesus being on trial by 71 of the most important, influential figures in all of Israel. These are people with immense power and control. And you have Peter, who is just outside listening to everything that is going on. And then we see what happens uh, to Peter in verses 66 to 72. It says, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near Peter said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. 
he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you are talking about. (coughs) Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Peter, the closest of Jesus' disciples, the person, if you were going to say, if Jesus had a best friend, this would have been him. He said that he wanted nothing to do with Jesus and never had anything to do with Jesus. He went so far as to call down curses against people who were telling him that he knew Jesus. And then he realizes what he's done. He breaks down. He weeps. He cries. He's devastated by what he has done. In this moment, I picture Peter looking back to when Jesus chose him specifically and said, come and follow me. This would have made Peter feel so special, so valued. This rabbi was choosing Peter, a fisherman who would never have been chosen in any other sphere, to come and apprentice under him. And he is just sworn, after Jesus had done all that for him, he is just sworn that he had nothing to do with his master who he was closest to. In the Gospel of Mark, this is the last thing that we see of Peter. There is no restoration. There is no, on this rock, I will build my church. In the Gospel of Mark, the last moment that we see of Peter is that he breaks down and weeps because he denied Jesus. Now, if it's true, and I believe it is, that Peter dictated the events of this to Mark to record, it's very strange that Peter chose this to end his story with Jesus here. He ends here as the denier. Now, this leaves us with an important question. Why did Peter deny Jesus? I mean, the obvious reason is that he was afraid. But why was he afraid? Let's take this deeper. There's multiple questions that we have to answer before we can get to the uh, the layers underneath this. Well, he was afraid because he thought he might get hurt along with Jesus. Now, that's fair enough, but why did he think he might get hurt along with Jesus? What was it that Jesus did that was so offensive to people? Well, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, Well, that's true, but there were so many people around Jesus' uh, time who were claiming to be the Messiah, and often the Jewish authorities would just let them move along. Uh, Well, Jesus uh, claimed to be God. This is who Jesus did claim to be in his interactions here with the Sanhedrin. Now, when Jesus said, I am, in verse 62, he is associating himself with God when God came in the burning bush uh, to Moses and said, I am that I am. But even so, even if Jesus did claim to be God, what does that have to do with the Jewish officials? Can't they just write Jesus off and call him insane? I mean, we're talking about 71 of the most influential, powerful people in the entire nation. Why would this Jewish 
Galilean carpenter who they would have considered a bit of an upstart, why would that have been so offensive to them for him to have called himself God? To get to the point of really understanding why Peter was afraid, we need to know why did Jesus die? Now, some of you might be thinking, Jesus died to save us from our sins and fulfill the will of the Father, which is true. But let's think about this in a purely natural, physical sense. What was it that caused these people of influence, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of this nation, to be willing to put aside time to put a Jewish carpenter from the negligible region of Galilee on trial and consider him worthy of death? To answer that, you need to understand the worldviews of the day. Within Jewish culture and within the Sanhedrin here, there is more than one worldview that is represented. This is no different to our world today. Even in this room uh, that we are sharing, and even for those of you joining with us online, there is a range of different worldviews that affect how we view things. In our society today, someone's worldview is increasingly how we will identify someone, which is also a result of our, uh, of our increasing polarisation in society. Like our society, there were polarised views, worldviews, during Jesus' time and within Jewish culture. Different from our time, however, is your religious worldview was automatically tied to your political worldview. Both of these things worked with one another. And on one side, you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees represented the conservative worldview of the day. They had a strong belief in oral tradition, particularly surrounding the, uh, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. They had a strong belief in, uh, they, they held to the teaching of the law and the prophets without compromise. They went so far in their belief of this that they added a lot of extra rules to what they believed. They had um, more of a following in the rural areas of Israel and represented probably more like the blue collar workers of the day. This is not that different to, uh, to our world. Even today, the further you go out from the city, the more rural you go, the more likely you are going to find people of a conservative worldview. And on the other hand, on the other side, you had the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they represented the more progressive worldview of the day. They were the elites in society, and they tended to stick more to the city, particularly around Jerusalem. They were more willing to adopt the practices of the Greeks into their lives, and they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, which is why they were sad, you see. I'm surprised you haven't heard that. It's very lame, isn't it? I'm a dad, I can make these jokes now, it's fine. <laughs> Once again, this is not too different from today's world. In our world, the elites of society, or those people that we see as elites in society, are often those people that we see on TV. The actors, the musicians, the influencers, the sportsmen, 
Generally speaking, most of these people gravitate towards the cities of the world like the Sadducees did. And many of these people, like today's society, will often hold a fairly progressive worldview and they use their platforms to promote this. The Great Sanhedrin, however, was made up of 71 rabbis. This Great Sanhedrin accusing Jesus was made up of 71 rabbis from both different groups. They were made up of a combination of Pharisees and Sadducees. Even though they came from opposing worldviews, there were certain matters that they would come together on because they felt so threatened by certain things. And even though they had hatred for one another, there were causes that they would form an alliance on and they would combat together. And they saw Jesus as one of these. They were so threatened by what Jesus was proclaiming that these two opposite worldviews would come together to stand against him. Now, you might think that if you were going to put Jesus somewhere on this scale, he might be somewhere more like in the middle, and that's why Jesus was hated by both groups. But I don't think that's the case. Rather, I think that's where Peter is. I would say Peter holds this centrist worldview. The reason that I place Peter in this centrist worldview is because he seems to lack a conviction about certain things going on around him and he is swayed by the things going on around him like he is here at the crucifixion of Jesus and he is swayed by what people are saying to him. Sometimes I've heard Christians speak about being centrist because it's difficult to equate Jesus' teaching with a conservative worldview or the progressive worldview. There are some teachings of Jesus, like his teaching on forgiveness and social justice, that sound progressive. And there are other teachings of Jesus, like his teaching on sexuality and value of life, that sound conservative. While I understand the heart behind being identified as a centrist, I also struggle with this being the world with, uh, with this worldview. Because it seems to me that if someone was placing themselves somewhere in the middle of this scale, the likelihood that they will slide one way or the other, depending on who they're with, is, uh, is more likely. It almost comes across like this is a worldview for, uh, for, for people with less conviction. This is part of the reason that Peter is swayed by others when he is is confronted. But there is something greater. There is something even more powerful, greater, other than higher, a worldview that is outside of this, that is taught by Jesus throughout his ministry, which is a huge part, if not the major part, of why Jesus was condemned by the Sanhedrin. Jesus brought in this new world view for people to understand. And this threatened to tear down all other worldviews of the time. And this worldview was the worldview of the kingdom. Jesus came to teach this completely new worldview and understanding of how you might see the world and how you might see God. The worldview of the kingdom a worldview that doesn't fit within our scale of progressive to conservative, a worldview that is outside and greater and other than anything that we have come to experience in this world. 
In Mark 1, 14 to 15, we see this. Jesus summed up his whole reason for being on this earth. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom. The kingdom was the understanding and the way that uh, Jesus calls us to view the world around us. Jesus didn't come to reinforce any particular worldview that was already had in the world at that time. He didn't come to tell us what uh, what end of the scale we should be. Rather, Jesus came to turn everything upside down and to teach us that there is something even better in how we view the world. He came to teach us the ways of the kingdom, to turn our cheek when others wrong us, to forgive our neighbour when we've been wrong, to love everyone irrelevant of race, class, gender or background, that we are blessed when people persecute us and revile us. The way of the kingdom is to share a message of hope with the world. The way of the kingdom is to follow our God no matter what we face in this world. And Jesus' way of the kingdom, it is far greater than any other way. It's far greater than any other worldview that we see in our world. This worldview that Jesus taught was so transformative and so countercultural that it threatened to tear down everything that the Sanhedrin stood for and had built their lives around. When you have someone who is teaching this kind of worldview, it makes you fearful. Because this person doesn't just threaten your worldview, but threatens your whole way of life. Their livelihood was built around what they taught. And Jesus was moving in to tear it all down. Jesus had been gaining a huge following throughout Israel. But not only was he gaining a greater following than the Sanhedrin had, not only did he have greater influence than the Sanhedrin had, but he was also claiming to be the promised Messiah. When you have this carpenter from Galilee, not just claiming to be the Messiah, but saying that he is God himself, he is I am, they were terrified of what Jesus could do. They were terrified of Jesus tearing down their worldview and everything that they stood for. And the only way to stop someone like that is to kill them. There was no other solution for the Sanhedrin in this time. So the reason that Jesus died, the reason that Peter was afraid, ultimately was because the Sanhedrin was afraid. They were fearful of what Jesus was teaching and what Jesus could do. Peter, who was Jesus' right-hand man, it was Peter who had also been teaching this worldview around the nation that these people in the Sanhedrin saw as incompatible with their own worldview. And in this moment of Peter's denial, Peter denied everything that Jesus was, stood for and taught. Throughout this part of Scripture, we see two lots of fear presented. We see the fear of the Sanhedrin and the fear of Peter, but they are both the same fear. They both have a fear of protecting themselves 
and what they know because this new kingdom worldview, the kingdom worldview that Jesus was teaching, threatens that. The Sanhedrin, they were afraid for their livelihoods and Peter was afraid of an association with Jesus. Some of us this morning, you may associate yourself more with, um, with yourself in the Sanhedrin and all of this. This is prominent in our world today. Many Christians will associate more with their political party than they do with Jesus and his teaching. Now, it's our natural inclination to be part of a crowd or, uh, or part of a tribe. We want to be accepted and we want to fit in. And sometimes we can adjust our worldview to fit in with the group of people that we are a part of. This is a slippery slope, however, to denying the kingdom of God more and more throughout our lives until suddenly you realise that your worldview is incompatible with that of the kingdom. And that is what the Sanhedrin did. Now, some of you this morning, you may associate yourself more with Peter in this moment. The fear of what might happen if you are associated with Jesus. For many of you tomorrow, you will return to work, university, friendships, family lives, and you will have the opportunity to take on a kingdom mindset or to adjust yourself to a worldview that's presented by our world. And the easiest things in these moments is to deny the life, death and resurrection and the teaching of Jesus. But he teaches us something greater. This kingdom worldview is greater and it is eternal and is greater than anything that we can see in our current worldview. Now, all right, now, if you're thinking that any of this has been you, even over this past week, one thing I just want to reassure you of is that there is hope. In the life of Peter, we see so much hope. <laughs> Although this is not recorded in the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of John tells us about a later interaction that Jesus has with Peter. In John 21, 15 to 19, it says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. That last phrase, follow me, it's echoing back to Jesus' initial words and uh, Jesus' initial phrase that he said to Peter, which was, come and follow me. But this also points to Peter's future. Tradition tells us that Peter, um, he was martyred for his faith. And ultimately, the way that Peter was martyred for his faith is that he chose to be crucified upside down because he couldn't stand to be crucified or, uh, or die in the same manner as his saviour. He found himself unworthy to die in the same way as Jesus. 
And so he chose to be crucified upside down instead. What a story of hope that we see in Peter, of restoration, that he was brought back from being this guy who had been uh, remembered by many people throughout history as the one who had denied Jesus, and yet he comes back from this and he is restored by Jesus and told once again to come and follow him. This beautiful story that we see in the life of, of Peter. I'm just going to invite the team to, uh, to come up right now. During these next couple of songs, you're going to have the opportunity to take communion. You can take communion in your own time. Um, and as we take the, the cracker and the juice, signifying the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus, I just want to give you the opportunity to examine your hearts for two different things. Firstly, have you adopted beliefs, practices, understandings that have shaped how you have viewed the world? that are more from this earth than the kingdom of God? Have you been afraid of what it might mean to let that go and adopt more of a kingdom posture? Because Jesus offers a better way. The kingdom of God is a better way than what this world offers. Secondly, examine your heart. Have you denied Jesus? Whether explicitly like Peter or just through hiding it from other people, once again, the kingdom of God offers a better way that is free from here. Or free from fear. So I just want to invite you during these next couple of songs, examine your heart. Only you and God are able to know your heart, whether the kingdom of God and the kingdom lens is the lens that you view this world through. And it is what Jesus calls us to do as his, as his followers. So examine your hearts. And when you are ready, um, I just invite you to take communion um, when you're ready and then stand and we'll sing together. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we see through someone like Peter, that he was willing to do a 180 and when he was filled with your spirit, you were able to do mighty works through him. And Lord, I just really pray for all of my brothers and sisters here this morning who may have denied you, whether through word or through action. God, would you show them that there is hope, that you are not finished, <laughs> that you are calling them and saying, would you come and follow me? Would you be a part of my kingdom? Would you follow me as king, no matter what that involves? And Lord, I just really pray that we won't be a people who have a hard heart, either like the Sanhedrin, like these people who are so set in their ways that they were unable to adopt the kingdom of God into their life. Lord, we don't want to be people with hard hearts. We want to be people who are genuinely open to the teaching of Jesus, to the countercultural way that he taught for us to operate in this world. And Lord, we just be a people who see this world through that lens, who see people as you see them, who are wanting to welcome people into the kingdom of God, who know what it means that whatever we face in this world, no matter how countercultural it is, that we will be a kingdom people. Would you make us a kingdom people here, please God?
And as we right now remember the death of Jesus that has caused forgiveness of sins, Lord, we just confess any sin to you that we may have been holding on to and surrender that to you. In Jesus' name, amen.